This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Robert Wright. Robert is a journalist, scholar, and award-winning author of several books spanning several topics, including science, history, religion, evolutionary psychology, and game theory. His first book, The Evolution of God, was a New York Times bestseller and a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction. His other titles, Non-Zero, The Moral Animal, and Three Scientists and Their Gods, have also received significant critical acclaim. His most recent book, Why Buddhism is True, was published in August of 2017. Robert is also the co-founder and editor-in-chief of bloggingheads.tv, a current events dialogue where a diverse cast of contributors discuss politics and ideas. A primary mission of Blogging Heads is to help people see things from perspectives other than their own, and in particular, from perspectives that, for whatever reason, they aren't normally able to appreciate. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Robert and I spoke about how mindfulness meditation can be understood as a rebellion against natural selection. We also talked about the discovery in meditation and in contemporary psychology that we actually don't think our thoughts as much as thoughts arising as what Robert calls mental modules and how this leads to an insight from Buddhist philosophy about the discovery of no self. We also talked about whether or not there's an unseen order in the universe. What drives moral action? Two different ways to look at enlightenment as a process and also as an ideal end state. And finally, when we step back and become aware of how our minds work, how we're participating in what Robert calls a metacognitive revolution a revolution upon which Robert believes our future depends. Here's my conversation with Robert Wright. Robert, to begin, I'd love to dial us back two decades or so and understand what was going on in your life here, your a critically acclaimed writer and journalist that drew you to meditation. How did you become interested in meditation and why? Well, I guess I had flirted with meditation kind of off and on, uh, probably since college, but I had never really felt that I got much out of it. And I hadn't taken a very serious stab at it, I have to admit. Um, But I finally decided uh, on the recommendation of a friend to um, 
kind of go whole hog and do a one-week silent meditation retreat um, at the Insight Meditation Society. This was in 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the end of the week, I was, I, I was sold. Um, but, you know, as far as what got me to do it, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I guess uh, I was brought up religiously, but, mm, you know, was no longer uh, religious by the time I graduated from college. So maybe I was looking for something that was uh, spiritual in a different sense than my spiritual upbringing had been spiritual. I don't know. Um, I was curious. Uh, but in any event, uh, after, you know, after a, a, a week, uh, of retreat, I was, uh, I was sold. I was an evangelist. Okay. That's strong language, becoming an evangelist, being quote unquote <laughs> sold. So what happened during that week that it had such an impact on you? Well, the first couple of days were intensely frustrating. I, I, I you know, I don't, uh, I don't have a very, uh, a very long attention span. So I was having at least as much trouble as the average person focusing on my breath. Um, but within a few days, uh, things changed. And by the end of the week, I just felt that my consciousness was in a totally different place. Um, you know, I was just much more appreciative of beauty. Uh, I was much less judgmental of people. Uh, and I had, in addition to that, um, I had had, uh, just a couple of, you know, fairly dramatic experiences during the retreat. Um, I, I mean, w- while meditating, um, I, I know at the end of the retreat, I, I called my wife and, uh, she says that, uh, just as soon as she heard the tone of my voice, she liked the new me better than the old me um, because I was just <laughs> so much calmer and, and uh, happier, I guess. Uh, and of course, as, as you know, I'm sure it, it, you know, however transformed you feel at the end of your first retreat, um, and I did feel transformed, you know, the transformation doesn't like last automatically, you know, and you you have to work at a daily practice to hang on to some of what you, you feel you got. Um, but, and I've had my ups and downs since then. Um, but I'm, you know, I, I definitely have a well-established daily practice now. And I've been to a number of retreats since, you know, mm-hmm. to, that, that have served as kind of refreshers, but that, that was the big, the big threshold for me mm-hmm. back in 2003. One of the things that I think is so interesting about your story is that you discovered meditation in a profound way through a week-long silent retreat. And I think that a lot of people try to start meditating listening to an audio program or reading a book or working with an app, and they're working with 10 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day, but they don't actually go to a retreat. And I know in my own experience, it was the deep immersion experience, like you're describing, a silent Mm -hmm. retreat, that really introduced me and gave me the taste of meditation. I don't know if I could have done it just 10 minutes a day style. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. Uh, I feel I could not have done it. Uh, I mean, I had tried. And, uh, you know, I had even been to a kind of a, I guess it was just kind of an all day session. Um, and, and, uh, actually that was just to kind of check out the teachers who turned, who were teaching the retreat that I went 
to. They were they were teaching a kind of a one day thing in the area, and I and I went to that. But I didn't I didn't feel that I kind of got the hang of it, so to speak, or got a whole lot out of it. I just found that they seemed like perfectly nice people, and I'd be happy to spend a week, you know, under their guidance. But no, I don't think I could have. Uh, I don't think it ever would have clicked for me had I not done total immersion, you know, just gone to boot camp. I don't think anything less than that would have worked for me. Different people are different. You know, mm-hmm. some people take to it very naturally and easily, but I tell people who have dabbled and not gotten much out of it that, you know, they might consider taking a more dramatic approach. And I have to say, everyone who has gone on a week-long retreat at my suggestion, I guess there's now seven or eight of them, uh, if you were in my family, they were all satisfied customers. And a lot of them thought, you know, I, I, I'm not a, a meditator. But, um, you know, a retreat experience can, can take somebody who's, who, who doesn't meditate very readily or has trouble focusing um, and, and show them what, what life can be like uh, in principle if you, you know, if, if you do uh, take meditation very seriously and, 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 and get something out of it. Okay. So here you are, you're a meditation evangelist now. (laughs) How has meditation changed your view and your interaction with your thoughts and feelings? Well, you know, I already, even before that retreat, I kind of knew that my feelings and, and, thoughts were not necessarily reliable guides. I had written a book called The Moral Animal in the 1990s on evolutionary psychology, and one take-home lesson from evolutionary psychology is, well, actually, there are two main take-home lessons. One is our minds were not designed to make us happy or to, or to necessarily make us see the world clearly. They, uh, you know, because according to just standard evolutionary theory, uh, the genes that build your brain uh, were preserved by natural selection just to help get more genes into the next generation, just to help spread genes. And, and uh, brains can, can get their genes spread uh, by not seeing the world clearly, by being deluded, uh, and, 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 and also discontent uh, can be uh, a ticket to kind of doing the things that get genes in the next generation. So for starters, according to evolutionary theory, our, our minds weren't built by natural selection to, to necessarily help us see the world clearly or to bring us lasting happiness. And then the second thing is that then we, we are living in a world that isn't the world we were designed by natural selection to live in in the first place. So it gets even worse. I mean, our minds become even less reliable uh, guides. So you take something like uh, anxiety that, you know, I think most evolutionary psychologists would say is natural. It has a function, but you, you put, you put it in a modern environment and, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it behaves even less <laughs> anxiety <laughs> makes things even less pleasant for us than it would have in a more natural, uh, kind of, you know, almost pre-technological environment. So, um, you know, that, that's, so, so I, I already was suspicious of thoughts and feelings, but I didn't have anything to do about it. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, you can, you can fly into a rage and look back and go, oh, that was a mistake. You can, 
have like uh, a very uh, unflattering view of some person who is your rival. And in moments of calm reflection, you can go, well, I kind of have a biased view of them. I admit it. And so you can, you can, uh, or you can, you know, surrender to the urge to eat too much or whatever. You can, you know, you can go through life being kind of aware that feelings are misleading you in some sense and are giving rise to thoughts that are not good for you. But you, that doesn't mean you can do anything about it. And the thing I liked about uh, meditation and and Buddhist, the Buddhist philosophy that undergirds the kind of meditation I was doing at that retreat is that it actually offers a prescription. It's not just a diagnosis. Evolutionary psychology had given me a diagnosis. It had explained why thoughts and feelings are not necessarily reliable guides. But, um, you know, meditation provided me with an actual technique for at least beginning to liberate myself from thoughts and feelings that are not wholesome. Okay, but if I'm going to guide my life by something and I'm going to question thoughts and feelings... How do I make decisions? How do I go about things? I mean, my feelings about this person, whether I like them or not like them, well, obviously I want to spend more time with the person I like and avoid the person I don't. I have to trust my feelings on that, yeah? Um, yeah, ultimately, I don't know anyone who is not at all guided by feelings. Um, the question is distinguishing between feelings that are going to lead you to do unwholesome things or things you regret or things that will make you suffer or make other people suffer uh, and feelings that don't have those properties. So, you know, it's a question of uh, kind of deciding which feelings are reliable guides uh, and uh, kind of learning how to avoid following the feelings that aren't reliable guides. Um, you know, and, and it, this can be very kind of trivial stuff. It can be like you're sitting on the meditation cushion in the morning and you just realize, you know, there's no point in sending that, that kind of mildly irritated email I had planned to send today. That's not going to lead to anything good. You know, that's a, uh, it's not a very profound uh, instance of reflection, you know, but at the same time, it's a real accomplishment if you don't send these ill-advised emails that we all, you know, at, at some points uh, have the impulse to send. Um, and I think there are more profound examples, by the way, of, of how this kind of reflection um, can serve us well. But the object of the game isn't to quit feeling things. And it's, it's not even necessarily to quit having the unwholesome feelings. It's to experience them in a different way um, and get some perspective on them and, and just, you know, quit following the unreliable feelings. Tell me when you say to experience our thoughts and feelings in a different kind of way, what you mean by that different kind of way. Well, there is this irony. Um, and, uh, you know, I talk about this kind of early in the book because it really struck me, which is that if you get closer to feelings, you can get a certain kind of critical distance from them. You know, I, I, the, the first big, you know, I, what you could call meditative breakthrough, I guess, on my retreat was, um, it was like around the third day, I had had too much coffee, 
I'd cut back coffee from twice a day to once a day in honor of being on a retreat. That was my big uh, renunciation was the afternoon coffee, but I was still drinking it in the morning. And I had too much. And 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 that gives me a kind of a, a jittery, kind of a clenched jaw feeling. I mean, there's a real uh, feeling of stress and irritation like in the in the jaw. And I was medita- I was sitting down meditating. I was trying to meditate, and I thought, oh, no, I can't meditate because I've got this feeling in my jaw. And then I remembered, well, you know, the basic instruction is don't run from unpleasant feelings the way you normally do. Don't say, how can I get rid of this unpleasant feeling? Just experience the feeling. Uh, and in that sense, get closer to it. Just accept it. You know, embrace it. And when I did that, I mean, first of all, I observe things about it I might not have normally observed. I mean, you can, you can almost kind of, in a certain sense, see the texture of a feeling. You know, you're kind of experiencing it more closely. But then as soon as I did that, I kind of passed the kind of threshold where all of a sudden I thought, okay, that, that feeling, I guess you could call it an unpleasant feeling, but it's in my jaw and I'm up here in my head. And so I'm just kind of observing it and it's no longer a problem. I mean, all of the unpleasantness was drained from the feeling, and I suddenly felt I had a kind of a critical distance from it, but that had resulted from experiencing it more closely. So it's the same thing with anything, you know, any, any feeling. I mean, I one thing I tell people sometimes who have never meditated is, you know, well, just wait for the opportunity to observe a feeling, and don't even think of it as meditation. Just next time you're really sad, sit down, close your eyes and accept the feeling and observe the feeling. Just ask yourself, well, where in my body is it in my head? Where, and more specifically, where in my head is the, the feeling of uh, sadness? Just sit down, observe it, accept it, and I think you'll find it starts making you suffer less. And, and as I said, it's just kind of ironic because you get closer to what is supposedly an unpleasant feeling uh, but getting closer to it offers you a degree of liberation from it. Now, Robert, there's this great quote from your work that I really want to unpack here for our listeners. And here's the quote. You write, I think of mindfulness meditation as a rebellion against natural selection. Help us understand what you mean and in light of this conversation we're having about the feelings that we have. How is this move to get close to our feelings, a type of rebellion, if you will. Yeah, well, it gets back to this idea that natural selection has a kind of agenda. You know, all animals and plants in the world, according to evolutionary biology, uh, and I include us among the animals, all of them were created by a single criterion, which is that those genes that were best at getting genes into the next generation are the ones who came to kind of constitute the blueprint for the species. And uh, in our case, well, first of all, in the case of, you know, many animals, that means uh, that built into the animal is a kind of uh, a kind of perennial dissatisfaction, you know, a difficulty in maintaining happiness. Uh, Because when you think about it, if you imagine an animal, that eats a meal and then is eternally satisfied, never needs to eat again, well, then the animal would starve to death, right? Or, or in a sexually reproducing species, if, if we had sex once and then just 
lay there and bask in the afterglow forever and never pursued sex again, well, our genes wouldn't do very well compared to other people in our species. So it seems to be the case that the way natural selection got us to recurringly pursue these various goals that help get genes in the next generation is to make us perennially dissatisfied and, you know, not long after we reach some goal, whether it's food or sex or social status, you know, getting some promotion or winning some award or some material acquisition, you know, buying something that brings us uh, gratification, you know, not long after these things, we are again filled with the desire, the kind of thirst for more of the same thing. So that's, that's just one example of how natural selection gets us to play its game, to to pursue its agenda. So, if you, uh, if you, if if rather than than follow that guidance, if rather than surrender to the dissatisfaction and and follow the promptings of the urge that recurs not long after you eat or have sex or whatever, you know, whatever else, get get more status, whatever. If you examine the urge and decide whether or not you want to pursue more of whatever it is, that is in a certain sense a rebellion against natural selection's uh, agenda. You're not you're not doing what it is that natural selection uh, kind of built us to do. And you could say the same thing about a lot of uh, feelings, you know, um, fear of... Uh, social rejection or disapproval, for example. I mean, you know, we, by design, according to, you know, according to natural selection's kind of uh, priority, so to speak, we care deeply what other people think of us. And and that can be okay, you know. I mean, uh, that that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but if uh, if you just live in fear of the disapproval of people whose values, when you reflect on it, are not really you know, shouldn't be your guides, uh, then maybe you don't want to do that. Uh, or if you want to pursue social status at all costs, because that seems to be a kind of tendency that's built into us. Um, and you decide not to do that, that is in a sense, rejecting, uh, natural selections agenda. So there's a lot of different ways, you know, whenever you reflect on the feelings that kind of habitually guide us, and, and not necessarily reject them, but just decide whether or not you want to move in the direction they're encouraging you to move. That's a kind of rebellion against uh, against natural selection. So that's what I meant when I said that. So in a sense, when we sit down to meditate, we're making a counter-instinctual move. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. our instinct is to go and get more and succeed and survival of the fittest, but now I'm going to sit here and relax and be and examine myself. That yeah. might, You could call that counter-instinctual. And yet so many of us are drawn to it, Robert. So obviously there's something in us that wants the kind of peace and equanimity and, and vision. How do you explain oh, sure. that part of us? That That's obviously part of our evolutionary unfolding to want that. Yeah, I mean, I I think yeah, I, I think there's a almost a cosmic sense in which part of our evolutionary unfolding uh, brings us to seek a kind of a metacognition, you know, a more a greater awareness of the way our minds work, and 
and the ability to use that understanding of how our minds work to achieve more peace of mind and more um, kindness and, and whatever else. And what I mean by that when I say that uh, evolution in a cosmic sense is, um, is bringing us to this place is that if you step back and look at the history of life on this planet, uh, you know, from a, you know, as if you were viewing it in time lapse from Mars or something, I mean, you'll notice that, first of all, uh, you know, things starting out with a, you know, primordial ooze when you have these very primitive one-celled organ- organisms, um, you know, things get, complexity gets built up, you get multi-celled organisms, you get societies of multi-celled organisms, and then in our um, species, uh, you know, these societies start getting complex, and technology make, you know, creates more and more complex societies, and now here we are on the verge of, of having an actual global community, and yet we also seem on the verge of blowing the whole thing apart, mm-hmm. you know, in various ways, whether with environmental degradation, nuclear war, just this kind of tribal infighting that you see both between countries and within countries. Um, and, you know, it seems like if we're going to sustain the, the what has in some sense been a direction of the whole process um, and and achieve some kind of cohesive global community that involves mutual understanding among different kinds of people, um, I really think more and more people are going to have to get better at this kind of, again, you can call it metacognition uh, if you want. I, my own preferred path toward it is meditation. That may not be the only way to, 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 uh, to, to gain the kind of equanimity uh, that helps you interact with people in a more constructive way. But for me, meditation uh, seems to be the most powerful way to do that. But in any event, I think if the species wants to kind of sustain this direction, uh, then um, it's going to have to uh, be, you know, be drawn toward, you know, these kinds of contemplative uh, practices and, and forms of awareness. And as you suggest, when we do this, I mean, in, you know, in a certain sense, you can't escape it's not like you're entirely escaping your biological heritage. There must be within us this capacity. There must be within us this uh, this kind of, um, first of all, this uh, desire for a higher level of awareness and the peace of mind that can bring. And there must be the capacity for achieving it. Um, and and by the way, I, I've, I've I've been giving natural selection kind of a bad rap, but it, it's important to acknowledge that natural selection built into us things like compassion and love, uh, which are very good things. The, the problem is natural selection inclines us to sometimes uh, not, not bestow things like compassion in, an, in a kind of equitable or, uh, or defensible fashion. So we may shower compassion on members of our family or in some sense our tribe or whatever, uh, and have a correspondingly uh, harsh stance toward people outside those groups. Uh, and, and it's that tendency to kind of misdeploy uh, our gifts, like compassion, that I think is worth 
fighting. But at the same time, I, I, I you know, I want to recognize that these gifts are products of natural selection too. The, the fact that we have compassion and the capacity for love, the capacity for understanding and forgiveness, and so on. So it's kind of a question of using some tools uh, natural selection gave us to uh, to work against some of the more un- unfortunate biases it built into us. And I'm curious if you think it's fair to say, and I think you were implying this, that our very future depends on our ability to do this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I you know, you see this in, uh, in American politics uh, right now. Um, you see kind of tribal psychology run amok within the country. The country's more politically polarized than ever. Um, and you see it, uh, you know, on, along the religious dimension, you see sectarian conflict, you see national conflict. Um, and when these things are unfolding uh, amid, you know, technological evolution that is uh, giving us more and more ways to destroy the planet, you know, something has to change. I mean, uh, if we don't get better at getting along with one another, we're going to misuse these technologies um, in a catastrophic way. Uh, And I think further challenging us here is the way the evolution of information technology is changing, you know, the texture of our life uh, so rapidly, you know, just like adjusting to things like uh, social media, you know, and, 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 and keeping those things from kind of driving you crazy uh, is a challenge. So I think it's, I think humankind is approaching, um, you know, a big kind of test. Uh, and we, I think either we, uh, you know, cross through what you could call a spiritual threshold or a threshold of self-awareness um, in larger and larger numbers, you know, more and more people around the world, uh, or, or I think, you know, we could pay a very steep price. Now, in your book, why Buddhism is True, you call this potential, this threshold, a metacognitive revolution that we need. And first of all, I really liked calling it a metacognitive revolution. I thought that might be more popular. People would like that better than maybe some of the other ways of describing, you know, mass spiritual awakening or something that would mm-hmm. seem too, for lack of a better word, magical to people. But metacognitive, that sounds like a really smart thing to do. And you use that language to describe what it would be like to step back and become aware of how our minds work. Seems mm-hmm. seems pretty straight ahead. So my question to you is, if you were to imagine a metacognitive revolution, what does that look like? Um, well, first of all, it would, I think, I, I, I think you're right that, that some people, you know, words like spiritual and, you know, kind of, uh, some people, uh, you know, is off-putting. Uh, but I think there are other virtues as well in the word metacognition. I mean, I, I didn't come up with it, but, but I do think it's a, it's a good word. And one is that it, it's kind of a nod toward, um, the fact that cognitive science, you know, psychology and, and related sciences, um, cognitive science is showing us, is illuminating more and more how, uh, you know, the mind's normal operation involves various kinds of cognitive biases. 
these include some of them are just strictly economic like you know uh you know there are weird kind of glitches in the way we we think through economic decisions but some of them are distortions in the way we look at other people and and how you know whether you put somebody initially on the kind of enemy side of the line or the friend side you know whether they're part of your tribe or not part of your tribe um that influences how you process all kinds of information about them so we're learning these kinds of things we're learning from psychology and not just evolutionary psychology that the mind as it normally naturally operates can be a very unreliable and even dangerous instrument uh and that's part of the revolution is this uh this growing foundation in science uh for practices that aim to do something about the problem like meditation um but I, I guess I would say to answer your question, what does it look like? I think there, there are two main parts. One is to uh, spread awareness that science is showing us that uh, the mind is in some ways an unreliable instrument. And then the second part is encouraging people to uh, follow a practice that helps them address the problem. And that, that doesn't have to be a Buddhist practice. I mean... Um, you know, I emphasize early in the book, when I say why Buddhism is true, I don't, I mean, first of all, I'm talking about uh, the kind of naturalistic parts of Buddhism, Buddhist psychology and Buddhist meditation. I'm not really getting into the, what some people would call the religious or supernatural parts or whatever. I'm um, leaving that uh, aside. But secondly, the things that I'm saying are true about Buddhism. Those are things that could be uh, accepted by anyone of any religious persuasion, I think. In other words, they don't, uh, you know, you could be a Christian, a Muslim, a practicing Jew, a, a Hindu, um, and and have your own way of addressing, um, of addressing, you know, uh, the, the challenges that science is highlighting, the challenges of, of uh, you know, seeing the world more clearly, and and suffering less and make other people suffering less. And I do, one thing I like about the kind of Buddhist philosophy is that I think a lot of it can be boiled down to that, that, that the reason we suffer and the reason we make other people suffer is because we don't see the world clearly. And that's in a way good news because however hard it may be to see the world more clearly, it, it, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, nice to think that by approaching a truer view of the world, by clarifying our vision, we can become happier people and we can become better people. And that's a message that I think is consistent with all religions. And, and you know, different religions may have very different ways of clarifying vision. It may, uh, it may involve uh, prayer and, uh, uh, you know, prayer can be a way of um, self-reflection, you know, uh, Prayer can be a way, you know, like, I mean, my own background is Christian. I know the Christian prayer can be a way of deciding which voices inside you you want to pay attention to, which urgings, you know, you can, uh, you can, you can pray for that. And, 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 uh, and that, that is, uh, and there are various contemplative practices in Christianity and other, other schools of religion 
that that have as their goal kind of deciding which interior voices to listen to. And that's, as we just said, you know, that's what a lot of meditation is about. So I think different, and, and by the way, entirely secular people uh, can clarify their, their vision in various uh, other ways. It may be a purely secular form of meditation. It may involve, I don't know, cognitive behavioral therapy. There are different ways to clarify uh, the mind and get better at uh, and to get better at deciding which uh, which feelings and thoughts to accept as as guidance. Um, I just think it's important that that people around the world do it more and more, uh, regardless of what tradition they're doing it within. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, in your book, Why Buddhism is True, there are two core ideas that meditators begin to discover that are part of Buddhist philosophy that you go into in quite some depth. And I want to talk about them, Robert. One is you talk about the discovery of no self, that there's actually not a singular CEO, manager, hierarchy, guy at the top who's inside each one of us or woman at the top, whatever, telling us this is, there's not one big capital S self. So tell me what we know from science, from the science side, not so much the meditative side, and that we'll get into how they come together about whether or not there's a CEO self inside. Yeah, for some time, psychology has been moving toward the view that the conscious self is not really running the show nearly as much as we think. I mean, we all have this intuition that, uh, you know, I, this conscious me, Bob, uh, I make the decisions, I'm the CEO. Um, Well, Buddhist scripture going way back, you know, Buddhist texts going way back, cast doubt on this idea. Um, And it's taken psychology a while to get to the point of casting doubt on it, but it started to happen. So, um, you know, for example, there are experiments in which, um, you know, they say to people, well, okay, whenever you get ready to press the button, press the button. And they are monitoring uh, the people's brains and their physiology. And it seems to be the case that uh, the the physical stuff that leads to the pressing of the button, that drives the pressing of the button, the physical stuff in the brain actually precedes the point at which the person is aware of making the decision to press the button. And there's all kinds of different experiments that similarly suggest that the conscious self uh, is not really in touch with a lot of the actual motivation behind our behavior. It's not really making uh, the decisions. And uh, 
there's a model that is is more and more widely accepted, I think, within psychology, certainly within evolutionary psychology, called the modular model. And in this view, the mind really consists of a bunch of different actors, and they're kind of built by natural selection to do different things. There's the there's the actor, there's the part, there's the self that wants more food, there's the self that wants more social approval. There's there's different kinds of little modules that focus on different things. And they do a lot of the work below the conscious level. So we're not always aware uh, of, of them. And, and we're not aware that there may be competition among them in deciding what we do next. You know, do I, do I go for that food or do I stay here and talk to this person or whatever? Um, and what's interesting to me about this modular model of the mind is how Closely, it accords with something you hear from meditation teachers sometimes. I mean, like at a retreat, sometimes you'll hear a teacher saying, thoughts think themselves. And, and what they mean is that if you reach a point of sufficiently kind of calm observation, it, that's the way it may start to seem to you. Whereas you'd previously thought of the conscious self as this thing that thinks the thoughts, that, that from a, from a, a very contemplative uh, kind of uh, position, it starts seeing these if, no, the thoughts kind of just float into the mind. And then the mind, you know, the conscious mind kind of grabs them as its own and claims them and says, I thought this. But actually, no, it's more like thoughts are being injected into the realm of consciousness. So this is, this is very consistent with this kind of modular uh, model of the mind that a lot of psychologists are uh, paying attention to. And it's just interesting to me that you know, very deep and sustained meditation leads to a view of the way your own mind is working that is so uh, so consistent with a view that uh, psychologists have been moving toward just through laboratory experimentation. And I and I think it's it's one of a number of ways that uh, kind of a, you know meditative a meditative approach to understanding the mind uh, actually converges on the scientific approach. Now, Robert, I, I get it when you talk about having enough meditative awareness to see, you know, I don't, God, I don't know where these thoughts are coming from. Are they coming from the person across the room? I have no idea. They're just emerging. They stay for a period of time. They might come with a whole train filled with stories. Then they go. The train leaves. Okay, I don't know where thoughts come from. I get that. I think a mm -hmm. lot of people could relate to it. At the same time, there does seem to be some part of me, you could call it the wise self or the higher self or the knowing self, that if I sit for a while and just let all the thoughts be, let all the feelings be, it kind of knows the right thing to do, the right mm -hmm. action to take. There's this sort of inner knowing. How do I understand that if it's not a quote-unquote self? but it feels like something inside me that's coherent and wise. Yeah, well, this is, I, I, I do, I kind of talk about this in the book when I look at the, the Buddha's uh, most famous discourse on, it's called the Discourse on the Not-Self, where he kind of makes an argument that the self doesn't exist. And, and, and you know, he says, okay, so if you, he says, he, he goes through and he says kind of like, look at the various parts, of, the things that you consider kind of the self, parts or parts of the self, you know, feelings and, and so on. Um, 
do you really want to like identify with these? You know, I mean, are they really are they really under your control, and are they really uh, bringing you happiness and so on? And he says, if not, you know, let them go. And and so he goes through all the things that, according to Buddhist philosophy, together constitute human experience. I mean, I won't get into what they the different names for these five so-called aggregates, but um, he goes through them all and basically says, let them go. And he says, not in so many words, but, you know, then you will be liberated. And and I raise the question, well, wait a second. (laughs) If you've let go of everything that that constitutes itself, where is this you that gets liberated? Um, What was that? If you've let go of everything, I mean, what is there doing the letting go? And, And this is a kind of a paradox in in the doctrine of not-self, at least superficially, it's a paradox. Now, um, there are people who reach such meditative depth, I guess, who say they have the full-on not-self experience, and it just kind of makes sense, even if it's hard to explain. But in any event, you're right that there's always going to be, I, I mean, certainly for me, anyway, I mean, I'm uh, I, I don't. I don't have realistic uh, hopes of of doing what Buddhists call attaining enlightenment. Um, uh, so, which is a very rare attainment. Um, so, for me, certainly, yeah, there's always going to be something there um, that, in a way, I'm thinking of as myself. But as you suggest, it's a very different version of the self. Well, you know, when when when. Uh, when when it when it's at its best, let's say it's you know eight days into a into a two week meditation retreat or something, you know when it's when I feel it's it is giving me the most reliable guidance. It's a very different self from the self that exists if my meditation has lapsed and I haven't meditated in days and I'm mm-hmm. out running around in the world. You know that's the other end of the spectrum mm-hmm. and. And you're right. It's it's just a more trustworthy uh, guide. It's it's not. Uh, it's it's it just feels calmer, more in a way dispassionate. Which doesn't mean you're not having feelings or that you're not getting joy out of life by any means. If anything, the opposite. I'd say you get more joy out of life uh, when you're in the state of mind I'm describing. But there's a kind of a calmness about it that just makes it a good judge. I don't know how else to... And and, and there's irony there, because in a, in a relaxing judgment, not making judgment, is, of course, part of the path that gets you there. Mm-hmm. So here we are, we're day eight of a 10-day meditation retreat, and you're in this space. How do you experience the quote-unquote self in that space? Meaning there are all these mental modules at work. I mean, I yeah. might think of them as like, you know, subpersonalities or whatever, but still there's yeah. this... What's your sense of selfhood at that point? Well, I, I guess the main thing, and this is something that has payoff even just in everyday meditation, leave retreats aside, but I think the uh, the biggest thing is that there are parts of, of me that I might have considered part of the self that I'm not considering part of the self. So you just take something that a lot of people have trouble with, anxiety. I mean, I remember not long after my first retreat, I was... Um, uh, I was about to give a talk. The next day I was going to give a talk in front of a pretty big audience, so it's the kind of thing that makes me anxious. And, and, and one thing that happens to me sometimes is the night before a big talk like that, I'll, I'll wake up in the middle of the night, I'll be anxious about the talk, and I'll start thinking, oh, wait, what if I can't fall asleep? Then I'll do a really terrible job, right? 
So I've got this anxiety, and I just sat up and meditated, sat up in bed, meditated on the anxiety, and my my relation to it just suddenly changed fundamentally. It was as if I was I was just looking at it as if I was looking at a piece of abstract art in a museum. It's like, well, that's interesting. It's kind of in my abdomen. It's kind of like a knotted rope in the middle of my abdomen. That's what the anxiety looks like. But I was really no longer considering it part of myself. So I, I guess the main, you know, one way to talk about what it's like to move to at least toward this not self experience is that there's parts of you that you used to identify closely with that led to suffering that you're no longer considering part of yourself. Um, so that can be uh, unwholesome feelings. It can be the thoughts that are sponsored by those feelings like, Oh, I'm going to screw up or, or, Oh, that guy's a jerk, you know? Um, but uh, I, I guess I'd say that, you know, the, the progress, the kind of, if you want to call it spiritual progress or therapeutic progress or whatever, it consists partly in having a, a more and more selective view of what is the self. You know, letting letting go of some of the baggage that you used to just automatically identify with and even follow the promptings of. Um, and then the more that you let go, the calmer a place you're in. Mm -hmm. And you draw moral implications from this, that the more we're moving in this direction of no self, that it changes how we act. And since we talked about the metacognitive revolution, I want you to unpack that for our listeners. How do we act differently when our sense of self dissolves to a certain degree? Yeah, I mean, and this is the fascinating thing about the Buddhist claim is that, uh, you know the, the 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 path toward lessening your own suffering actually actually makes you inflict less suffering on others. It makes you a better person. And as I said, it also the idea is that it gives you a clearer view of the world. Now, I want to emphasize: I don't think it's quite automatic that as you become uh, a, a, a more effective meditator in the therapeutic sense that it, that that as you use meditation to to give yourself more peace of mind. I don't think it's quite automatic that you become a better person. There are definitely cases that are well known in the history of contemplative practice where, for example, there are very adept meditators who are uh, exploitative as mm -hmm. teachers, Yeah. right? They may sexually exploit people. They may exploit people in other ways. And I don't doubt that these people are very good meditators. And in fact, they may even use... The, some of their meditative skills to exploit people more effectively. So, I I I don't I don't want to say you become an automatically better person. And and this is the reason that in the Buddhist tradition, there's a lot of moral guidance that comes along. They, they with, with the deal, they don't just say meditate. They they there there there's the whole list of of things that are encouraged, like right speech and so on. Uh, but I do think that even if you don't aren't getting this explicit uh, kind of moral instruction. I do think that there is a there tends to be a correlation between using meditation to become a happier, calmer person and becoming on balance a better person, a more considerate person, a person who is less likely to uh get irate with someone um just because, you know, you're in a hurry at the checkout line and they they drop their credit card, 
you know, and so they're slowing you down. Uh, I think you're, you are likely to be less harshly judgmental uh, of a spouse or a, a, a partner. Uh, I remember after my first retreat, I, I, uh, my kids, my two daughters who were very young then, uh, did something that really bothered me, and I felt the urge to yell at them. And I just, I saw the urge rise up, and I just looked at it and went, you know, I don't think this is going to make me happy. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't follow, I didn't, I didn't follow it. I didn't yell at them, which would have been an unproductive thing to do. And and that wasn't, it was just that kind of thing was just almost a natural consequence of having gone to a meditation retreat for my own good. I, I didn't go to the meditation retreat because I thought I'll become a better father. I thought, you know, maybe it'll give me, you know, make me happier, more whatever. But in pursuing what you could call uh, therapy, you know, and just seeking peace of mind for yourself, I think on balance you do tend to become, not quite automatically, but you tend to become uh, a better person. One of the things you're pointing to is how meditative discoveries do and don't translate into how we act in the world, into our mm-hmm. everyday actions. Sometimes they do seem to translate, and, and you point out other times they don't. People can be incredible on the cushion, but not bring that into their actions in life. What do you think makes the difference? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, well, I guess all I'll say is I, I I see the challenge in my own practice. I mean, I see, uh, like, so I'm doing my, I, you know, I meditate every day, and I am working to uh, kind of convert that into uh, a more more constructive relationship with, say, my wife or my kids, and I'm very conscious of that. Um, and then... You know, I'll be reading the news or something, and there will be a read about somebody whose ideology drives me nuts and whose ideology, I think, is a threat to the world. Like, in my case, this would be uh, like some militaristic, you know, uh, I won't name names, but people who have helped get the United States into a series of military misadventures. And... uh, uh, I'll, I'll, um, it'll just take more reflection to realize how automatically, uh, my hostility toward them is, is just shaping the way I think about them. Now that doesn't mean that my goal is to get to a point where I decide that actually their ideology is fine. No, it's just to get to a point where I don't, I don't hate them, you know, it's like, I don't, it's not, it's not constructive to hate the individual people espousing the ideology you don't like, at least that's, in my view, it's it's not, I mean, you, you, uh, it it just leads you to overreact and to, um, to, uh, you know, to often play into the hands of the ideological uh, enemy, so to speak. Um, I mean, I've, I've actually uh, started a thing called the Mindful Resistance Newsletter that, that's partly about this. You know, how do you, uh, 
uh, resist uh, political forces that you find abhorrent in an, in the most effective way, which I think is in the in the mindful way, you know, uh, in 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 a literal sense of mindfulness of just kind of paying careful attention, not being uh, swayed too much uh, by your emotions, but. You know, in answer to your question, like, why do some people become uh, exploitative meditators? Uh, all I will say is that, you know, if you look at the urges they're surrendering to, you know, in some cases, those are sexual urges. Um, they're strong urges. The, the, these are, and, and that, um, and, and so is the urge I was just describing, the urge to, to hate someone mm -hmm. who you think is screwing up the world. These are... They're very big challenges, and so it is tempting to apply, you know, your meditative equilibrium uh, to some parts of your life and, and let the, the more difficult or more subtle challenges go. And I suppose that's what happens with the, with the people we're talking about. Now, Robert, at one point you mentioned that when it comes to enlightenment that you didn't have any hope in your own life of, quote-unquote, attaining enlightenment. And, you know, I thought it was interesting that the subtitle of your book, Why Buddhism is True, is The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment. I think a lot of people have commented that the title of your book is bold, that you would use a word like true. I thought the subtitle was bold, that you would use a word like enlightenment, and mm -hmm. that you could explain enlightenment and not be enlightened. And I just wonder, first of all, what you think about that as an interesting challenge for a writer in your position. Well, it is a challenge. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, uh, have, uh, you know, professors of Buddhism who don't meditate at all have felt that they are capable of describing what, what according to Buddhism, enlightenment is. So, I'm not the first person to tackle that, but I'd also say um, I mean enlightenment in two senses. I mean enlightenment in the traditional Buddhist sense of the kind of, you know, end state that is the, you know, by Buddhist reckoning, elusive, hard to get to. Not many people have gotten there. Uh, the Buddha got there, but not, not many people do, and it involves the complete liberation from suffering and viewing the world with perfect clarity. So there's that. There's enlightenment as kind of the end state, and that's the version that I don't have realistic hope of attaining myself, um, but in the strict sense, at least, of, of enlightenment. But there's also enlightenment as the process, which is to say, just seeing the world a little more clearly today than you did yesterday. That is, you are a little more enlightened. If, if, you know, you, for example, uh, see somebody behave in some way and you go and your feeling is, uh, you know, you, you kind of sense like essence of jerk in that person. That person's a jerk and you kind of perceive essence of jerk, you know. It's a feeling as much as a thought when you, in, in your kind of perception and cognition, uh, as you apprehend that person and... If you develop the ability just to just say, wait, I don't really know. I know almost nothing about this person. I've been observing them for five seconds. For all I know, whatever they did that annoyed me, they did because they just found out that their spouse has a terminal illness or something. Who knows? They had a bad day. I just don't know. And if you, if you 
recognize that, and because you're meditating every day, have the ability to just shift your perspective and no longer see kind of essence of jerk in that person, I think that is an increment of enlightenment. That is a more enlightened uh, view than the view you had before that perceptual shift. So um, I think even if I have no realistic hope of attaining enlightenment in the sense of the end state, I do have the hope of becoming more enlightened than Mm -hmm. I am, and and, and in that sense, undergoing as much enlightenment um, as I can. And I think we all have that uh, potential. And and I think thinking about the end state can actually be helpful. I mean, uh, not necessarily pursuing it, but, but just uh, you know, in mathematics, there's this idea of something called an asymptote. It, it's something you can get closer and closer to, but never attain. Well, even if you don't uh, ever attain enlightenment as an end state, uh, thinking about what it would be, I think, can, can, can maybe be helpful in orienting you as you try to move in, in the direction of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to talk more about this end state because I think the other definition of enlightenment, a little more enlightened after this experience or that experience or as I continue to practice and go on retreats, I get that, a journey mm-hmm. of enlightenment. I think most people probably do. This idea of enlightenment as an end state, I think it's a lot trickier. And Robert, part of where I'm coming from is here I've worked, it sounds true, with so many different spiritual teachers and authors over three-plus decades. And it used to be that people would ask me, do you think so-and-so is enlightened? Is that person Mm -hmm. enlightened? Who's enlightened, Tammy? Please tell me. And I realized, you know, I don't know if I'm qualified to say this person has reached a quote-unquote end state because some beings seem more free in this area but less free in that area. And I don't know if I've ever really met anybody who couldn't stand to grow in some way or another so I'm curious about this end state notion, what it means to you when you write about it. Well, I think I agree with you in the sense that I'm not convinced that anyone on this planet right now is enlightened in the strict and all-encompassing sense. Um, I mean, I, and, and I have a kind of a maybe what is an old-fashioned view of enlightenment. You know, uh, there are, you know, people define enlightenment in various ways, and there are people... I know of who say they're enlightened. They have attained awakening. Um, and, and, but sometimes when I start talking to them, I find that they have a narrower definition of enlightenment mm-hmm. than I have. So they might say, for example, well, enlightenment doesn't necessarily have a moral dimension. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're a wonderful, that, 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 that you uh, are a good person in the way you treat everyone. Well, Call me old-fashioned, but I actually think that the original idea in Buddhism was it would. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's equally a moral, it's as much a moral attainment as it is a kind of a personal attainment. Now, that's just a difference uh, of opinion. But, but certainly, if you, if, you, if you define enlightenment less strictly, then it's easier to imagine more people having been enlightened. But I, I think of it as almost this uh, ideal where, uh, you know, I, I think I, I, the way I think of enlightenment, you would lose every ounce of selfishness, you know. And I don't know anybody who's lost every ounce of selfishness. Maybe you do. But, but uh, I, I mean, you know, and, and Buddhist doctrine, you know, the idea is literally not self, no self, 
is part of enlightenment. The, the, now, by that they mean the metaphysical apprehension of not-self, the recognition that the self is an illusion, but the idea is also that uh, selflessness in that sense, you know, the, in, in the sense of recognizing that the self is an illusion, leads to selflessness in the moral sense. At least that's, that's my understanding of the, of the kind of early uh, Buddhist teaching. So I'm, you know, maybe I'm using a, a kind of old-fashioned and, and strict definition of enlightenment, but I basically have had the same experience you seem to have had where you look at people who are very accomplished meditatively, but you can point to areas where maybe they could stand to grow a little. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you write about enlightenment in this one sense as an end state, as an ideal that's helpful for us to point towards. That's right. I mean, I don't rule out the possibility that there are people uh, around who have attained it or that there are people who will. I'm just not confident I've ever met anybody I'd say that about, and, and I'm feel completely safe in saying I will never reach enlightenment in the in the strict sense, but you're right. I it, it's because in the book I make the argument that if you did attain that ideal, that that would be complete moral clarity. You know, you, you would you would have completely abandoned the selfishness in your perspective, and so that would be uh, moral truth. Um, now, there's some arguing that, yes, enlightenment, whether or not anyone's ever attained it, it deserves the term. It, it is, you know, that is, that is the apprehension of uh, both the truth about the world, kind of, you know, in a metaphysical sense, but also it's, it's the apprehension of, of moral truth. And just thinking about that um, in an abstract way, you know, just thinking that, well, whether or not you're going to attain it, that would be the ideal state, uh, both in terms of your own happiness and in terms of your moral conduct, that motivates me to want to move in that direction, however hard it is, you know, uh, to get to get very close to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's one final thing I want to talk to you about, Robert, which is towards the end of the book, there's a final chapter on meditation and the unseen order. And Mm -hmm. you quote the American philosopher and psychologist William James, and William James says, Religion, in the broadest sense, can be thought of as the belief that there's an unseen order and that our supreme good lies in harmoniously adjusting ourselves thereto. And that really caught my attention. And it really caught my attention because I think from a young age, I've always had this sense that there was an unseen order. And it's something that has inspired me and in many ways, I think has inspired Sounds True for the last three plus decades. So I'm curious to know if you have a sense with all of the writing, scholarship, research you've done, that there's an unseen order afoot. Yeah, well, you can mean a lot of things by that, of course. And James, you know, he was writing at a time, you know, a uh, hundred or so years ago when he was aware that this, uh, of the challenge science was posing to traditional religion, but he very much wanted to preserve some conception of spiritual truth and spiritual pursuit. Um, and people can mean different things by the unseen order. They may mean 
God in a fairly traditional sense, so that may mean something very different. And yeah, I certainly think that in some sense of the term, there is an unseen order. Uh, in fact, maybe in at least a couple of senses. One, I, I, uh, I guess I've alluded to them both. One sense is the, this claim that there is a kind of a natural convergence between seeing the world clearly, more clearly, becoming happier, and becoming a better person. That those two things, that those three things, kind of tend to align. Um, that's a kind of order. I mean, it, the universe didn't have to be built that way, presumably, right? You can imagine a universe in which the more clearly you see things, the more horrible you become. Uh, or, uh, you know, in, in various other ways, those three things are not aligned. Um, but I think that's a kind of order. Uh, there's another, um, well, it's a related kind of order, I guess you could say, that um, I talked about in a book of mine called The Evolution of of God, which is just that... Um, well, it, it gets, I won't try to articulate the whole thing, but it gets back to this thing I mentioned about evolution in the cosmic sense. Uh, the, the, the not just biological, the biological evolution of human species, but the kind of evolutionary trajectory uh, that technological has kind of, technology has kind of taken us on, you know, where we, we get more and more interconnected with people at greater and greater distances. And so, social organization grows and grows, and now it's on the verge of um, kind of a global uh, community. I, I think if you look at what, there, there's something that's been driving that. And again, you can imagine a universe that didn't have that. But what's interesting to me about that is that what we've been driven to is this point where the preservation of the whole social structure which presumably we're in favor of the 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 you know the the preserving an orderly and harmonious social structure demands moral progress i think uh of the kind that could be furthered by what we've called metacognition so again if you look at it not just in the everyday sense you know of me becoming happier and then maybe becoming slightly more considerate to people as as kind of a you know and, and those two things being interrelated uh, and 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 seeing things more clearly. If, if if you don't just look at it in the immediate sense, but look back in the cosmic historical sense, you could argue that we've been driven to this point where where our very the you know social order and and the preservation of the whole species um, demands that we see things more clearly and make moral progress. So you again see in this in this deep cosmic sense a kind of aligning of 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 kind of you know moral truth or a closer approximation of it and our own welfare. So it just seems like we've been driven to this point. And I'm not when I say that I'm not I'm not I, I'm not departing from the kind of conventional evolutionary biology explanation of how we got here. I'm, I'm not necessarily positing any kind of uh, you know, non-material uh, thing that, that's guiding us. But, but, but even if you're a strict materialist and, you know, you just think, well, it's just, you know, kind of nuts and bolts and um, stuff that's driven to this point, you have to ask the question, well, why is the universe set up 
such that the, the nuts and the bolts, the, the, the materialistic process drives humankind toward this point of reckoning, well, creates humankind in the first place, then drives it to the point of reckoning where uh, we are, you know, strongly encouraged to more closely approximate uh, moral truth and a clearer view of the world. Why is that? Uh, and that, so in that sense, too, I mean, I know I've said a lot, and it may not be very clear, but that's another sense in which I think um, there, you could say there's in some sense an unseen order. You know, things are set up in this very morally interesting way, and we don't, we don't really know why mm-hmm. they're set up this way. <laughs> now, now, I want to I try one thing on you here, Robert, okay. which is, Sounds True published a, an audio and video with Eckhart Tolle called The Flowering mm-hmm. of Human Consciousness. And in it, Eckhart compares a teacher like Buddha or Jesus to an early flower that has appeared. And he he uses this metaphor from the natural world that at one point on the earth, there were no flowers. There was green biological life, but then a flower appeared and then more flowers appeared. And before you know it, there were flowers covering Mm -hmm. different parts of the world. And that these great, quote unquote, enlightened teachers were early flowers, but that over time we'll have more and more and more flowers. And I'm just wondering what you think about that as a metaphor for an evolutionary process, you could say, spiritually or from a metacognitive viewpoint that we might be in. What do you think about this flowering idea? Yeah, and if you wanted to to get kind of hardcore analytical about it and use a term that is common these days, the term meme – you know, has become uh, used to describe just something on the internet that catches on. But originally, it was it was coined by you know this hardcore Darwinian atheist Richard Dawkins to refer to any cultural idea or product. I mean, a song, a religious tradition, a moral idea, anything. And he and he and he pointed out, I think rightly, that with our species, that the real action in evolutionary terms is evolution among memes. It's cultural evolution. It's, it's, it's competition among ideas and so on. And so, yeah, I think what you're describing is when, you know, a species of idea, you know, flourishes. And, and, and just, like, just like a successful species of flower leads to flowers all over the place, um, it's the same way with ideas. And, and these, uh, and, and, you know, there's something about the direction of the drift of organic evolution that gets us to a point where some of these very good ideas, like you heard from Jesus or the Buddha or whoever, uh, do find fertile ground. They, they, they spread. And I, I, I don't, you know, and, and I think again, they, they need to spread uh, more and more, but I think that's a, it's a perfectly apt metaphor uh, for 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 where we are, yeah. The the important evolutionary action now is cultural evolution, and and I think that's the contribution we can all make now is to help in our own backyard, so to speak. You know, nurture the ideas uh, that the great sages came up with, uh, and in some cases that science is is continuing to uh, to to reveal or or support um 
and just uh, try to make them flourish in our own backyard, you know, in our own neighborhoods. Robert, I've really enjoyed talking with you. You're, you're so well-informed and thoughtful and clearly coming from a warm heart. I really, really appreciate your work. Thank well, you. I, pre- I really appreciate the opportunity, Tammy, because I know you've, you've done so much work in this area, broadly speaking, and have done so much good. So I'm, I'm really, really delighted we could have the conversation. I've been speaking with Robert Wright. He's the author of the new book, Why Buddhism is True, The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment. Thanks, everyone, for listening. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.